You're listening to Black Mirror Reflections, a podcast thinking through the technology, philosophy, morality, and politics of the series Black Mirror. Welcome back to Black Mirror Reflections. I'm your host, Dr. J, and today I'm joined by Rick Lee to talk about Shut Up and Dance, Season 3, Episode 3 of Black Mirror, which premiered in 2013. Before I introduce Rick, I just want to give a quick plug for this podcast's new Twitter account, at BMR underscore podcast. That's at BMR underscore podcast. So please take a second to follow us on Twitter so you can keep up with the latest episodes of Black Mirror Reflections. My guest today, Rick Lee, is Professor of Philosophy and Director of Placement at DePaul University. He teaches and researches in the areas of medieval and early modern philosophy, the Frankfurt School, and social and political philosophy. Rick is the author of The Force of Reason and the Logic of Force, published by Palgrave St. Martins in 2002, Science, the Singular, and the Question of Theology, also published by Palgrave St. Martins in 2002, and The Thought of Matter, Materialism, Conceptuality, and the Transcendence of Eminence, published by Roman Littlefield in 2016, as well as essays in journals such as Telos, Hobbes Studies, Vivarium, and the Graduate Faculty Philosophy Journal. He's currently working on an introduction to the history of philosophy of comedy, which he made sure to note is very unfunny. Rick didn't send me a proper bio in advance, as I clearly outlined in my guest instruction, so I intend to exercise extreme liberty in describing him now. Rick and I met in person for the first time about seven years ago. We were both stupidly drunk and 100% convinced that we were the most interesting humans alive. In our first conversation, I invented an imaginary, illegitimate child for Rick, who I named Ricky Effing Jr., and it was, as the more famous Rick says to Ilsa at the end of Casablanca, the beginning of a beautiful friendship. As much as I hate to admit that I was wrong, Rick was right about his own self-assessment in our first meeting. He is definitely one of the most interesting humans alive. He has every quality that I love in people. He's gregarious and also crude. He's also deeply kind. He's got a rapier-like wit and a keen mind. And he appreciates the fact that a good joke may be funny the first time, but not nearly as hilarious as it could be if you beat it to a quivering pulp. I genuinely love Rick Lee, and I'm so very happy to have him here to talk about Shut Up and Dance. So welcome, Rick. Lee, it is so great to be here. And that intro almost made me cry. I'm glad I didn't send you anything. <laughs> because otherwise you would have been like, Rick Lee is professor of medieval philosophy at the Bollywood. No, thank you so much, Lee. It's great to be here. Oh, I'm so glad to have you. Rick, at the beginning of every one of these podcast episodes, I asked my guests to summarize the episode that we're going to talk about. So could you summarize Shut Up and Dance? Yeah, Shut Up and Dance takes place. Let me just start by saying this. Some of Black Mirror episodes seem like they take place in the future, some in a different world, and some in our world, sometimes with a different technology, sometimes just with our same. And this is definitely in our world, pretty much with our technology that we have right now. The opening scene is a woman looking really nervous, parking her car and ditching her keys in the wheel. And then we cut to who's the, the character who's going to uh, drive the entire rest of the story, Kenny. 
Kenny is, what's interesting is it's hard to tell how old he is. When you first see him, he looks like maybe he's in high school, but he has a job. He's definitely looks very young. He works at a restaurant and there's a scenely in that restaurant that at some point we would need to come back to. But anyhow, and he goes home and he discovers that his sister has been trying to download movies illegally and borked his computer and it has malware. So he downloads a malware removal tool called Shrive. The name of that is really important. Removes the malware and basically downloads a Trojan onto his computer. They take control of his camera, whoever's behind this malware, and they're only called they throughout the the episode. They take control of his camera. And one of the first things we see through his computer camera is him taking a box of Kleenex and unbuckling his belt. So he's obviously ready to help himself. And as soon as he's done with that, washes his hands, comes back, he gets an email message saying, we know what you did, and they show him the video. And he is freaked. They let him know that he's going to be activated at some point in the future. We don't know what that means. And the next day he goes to work and he's activated and he's uh, given a task. He has to go to some location and wait. He's waiting at that location, which is another parking lot. And a guy comes on a scooter with a package, gives him a package. The guy on the scooter obviously also is being, what do you call it, blackmailed or they have something on him too. And that's why he's doing this. So then Kenny's told he has to take that package to an address. It turns out to be a hotel room. And there he meets for the first time Hector, who is not yet being blackmailed uh, by them. But in the course of their exchange, it turns out he's also being blackmailed. And the rest of the episode takes place pretty much with Hector and Kenny, our original character. They're sent on a number of tasks, including robbing a bank. Eventually, they have to deliver the money. Kenny has to do this alone. He meets another man in the woods. He's also uh, being blackmailed, and they are told to fight to the death. It's in the course of this conversation that for the first time, we come to learn in the episode that Kenny wasn't just masturbating, but child pornography was involved. They're told to fight to the death, Kenny pulls out a gun that was given to him to take care of the bank robbery. It seems like he's going to shoot the other guy, but it attempts to shoot himself in the head. Turns out the gun is empty. The next scene we see, they start fighting. Kenny then is leaving. He obviously beat the other man to death. And his phone rings. It's his mother screaming at him. Kenny, kids, what were you doing with kids? Did it have to be with kids? It turns out that Shrive, or whoever's behind Shrive, had publicized whatever images and dirt they had on all of the characters involved throughout all of this anyhow. And each one of the characters gets a troll mask in a text message on their phone, just as they're finding out that the information has been spread. I think it's important also to point out that except for that original woman, All the other dirt they have is all of a sexual nature. 
So Kenny was masturbating to child porn. The guy he purportedly beat to death, also child porn. Hector, who he meets in the hotel, was going to meet a prostitute. We don't know much about the guy who meets him on the, the moped, but we do hear someone in his family screaming, is this what you've become, a sick pervert? So I, I think it's important to note that a lot of this is sexual. And the uh, episode ends with the police pulling up behind Kenny, and he continues to walk off slowly as they're walking toward him. Yeah, I will just add also that the original woman that the episode opens on, we only see her in these first few glimpses at the beginning and a couple of glimpses at the end, that her sin seems to be, she ends up being the CEO that had sent out racist email. And so it is really interesting, and, and maybe we can get to this later, that what's presented as behavior beyond the pale in this episode almost entirely has to do with sexual things or racist things. Right. But before we get to any of that, I want to pick up on something that you mentioned right at the beginning of your summary, which is that unlike most Black Mirror episodes, this is a Black Mirror episode that does not include any futuristic technology at all. This is actually one of my favorite Black Mirror episodes, probably in my top three or four, and mostly because of this, because it doesn't require us to imagine a kind of futuristic technology. It just says this is, it really just deals with how technology shapes our lives right now. So I'm wondering how you feel about the fact that this is not, there's no futuristic technology in this episode whatsoever. Yeah, and this kind of malware, it's operating in the wild right now. And that's the other interesting thing about this is that to the extent that many of the episodes of Black Mirror are about technology, and I think, and I feel like you might share this with me a little bit, I think there's a whole lot of techno panic that goes on in Black Mirror. This one, the technology is also bad, right? It's malware. And so mm -hmm. they break into your computer. So the themes of the episode don't really hinge so much on technology, with two exceptions. One is the ubiquity of cameras, and the other is that Shrive, or whoever's behind it, once they get into your phone, they can track your location because they require you to turn on location services. So they're playing on the, the fact that we carry around basically homing beacons in our pockets all the time. And they and can also and also surveillance devices yeah. in our pockets. Yeah. Yeah. And on our Yeah. Yeah. But I love that surveillance device when like Google bings me and says, You're walking past the place with the greatest hot dog in Chicago. And then I'm like, oh, thank you, Google. How did you know I wanted a hot dog right now? So I feel often like Black Mirror either says technology is bad or at the very least says technology can definitely be used for evil. And then they look at the evil ways in which technology can be used. And here it's not clear exactly. It's not evil or one doesn't get the sense that the episode is saying that hacking is the evil here. The evil is the child porn, the racist emails, the ordering a prostitute, and, the, and then the use to which Shrive 
puts all of this. And so I feel like in many ways, or I, I don't want to say it's not about technology, but I find the technological aspect of this to be not as central as some of the other themes that the episode brings up. Yeah, I think that I agree that the actual machine technology is not as central to this episode as the human uses of technology or the human behaviors that are enabled by technology. One of the things that this episode is about trolling, about the power of anyone to take guerrilla control over these devices that we have clicked, I agree to the terms and conditions and made ourselves vulnerable and not aware of the way that these things can be hacked. And you mentioned that that this is malware. And I think that's really important because this was originally released in 2013. It definitely is recalling the I love you malware of, mm. I think, the early 2000s. So this was a malware that was very famous for getting into your devices and getting control of your contact list. And so being able to send content on your devices to all of your content to all of your contact lists. It, Lee, in the other direction, it also is like a, a different version of a ransomware, right? So mm -hmm. like instead of your data being ransomed, you're actually being ransomed. So I think it, it's an interesting combination of the I love you vi uh, virus and then the newer ransomware attacks. Charlie Brooker very famously said that Black Mirror is not meant to be dystopic. And I do think that what Charlie Brooker is wanting us to look at here is the both the actual technology that we have and the actual ways that we're using it. This, I think, takes us into the interesting naming of this malware. So shrive is an older English word for, it could mean to hear confession, but I think in the episode, more appropriately, it's to, to dole out uh, penance. So I don't know, quick thing, in the Catholic Church, you go to a priest, you confess your sins, the priest absolves you of your sins, but then gives you something to do as penance for the sin you did. So you don't get off for free. And often that's just saying a number of prayers or whatever. But I think here, the important point about Shrive is whoever's behind this is doling out penance for these sins. And in that sense, that's where I said, in a way, the technology is a little bit incidental. Right. So this idea of you must pay retribution for your sin and doling out that retribution, it is interesting that it's only the people involved in child pornography who have to fight to the death. The other sins, death is not on the table at all. And so there is a way in which the sin of child pornography is singled out here as requiring by Shrive extra special kind of penance or retribution. And what I think is one of the most interesting moves of this episode is that we don't know about the child pornography in relation to Kenny until all the way at the end. He's an incredibly sympathetic character. He's a character that I feel like in many ways was me, 
he's nerdy. He he's the way I I often uh, tell my students is I have never been comfortable in the world of men. Hey, who? Hey, guy, what's up? How, how about them? I don't understand that world. I don't get it. And Kenny also clearly like he has two co-workers who are constantly razzing him and so on. And um, who are very who are very broy. Yeah. Oh, yeah. They're totally broed up. And even Hector has a little bit of the bro to him mm-hmm. because there's a moment we, we can get into this in more detail if you want. But there's a moment when he's trying to convince Kenny he has to rob the bank and he starts talking about the names that they're going to call him at work. Mm-hmm. I, I wish I could remember some of them. Spunk maker or something like spunk yeah, or yeah, um, he's imagining for Kenny what his life is going to be like if this uh, video of him masturbating in front of his computer gets released. And he's, look, this will be a screensaver on all of your classmates. You know, his face, right? his orgasm face right, will be a screensaver. Right, right. <laughs> Which, I mean, honestly, like you say that throughout, until we know what he did, that Kenny is a really sympathetic character but honestly, after we know what he did, he's still a kind of sympathetic character. I say that with some caution because I know what he did. But one of the things that is really brilliant about this episode is its ability to draw us in to caring about and being invested in characters who we already know we should dislike. This is what Nabokov does in Lolita. Right. We like Humbert, Humbert, even though we know we're not supposed to like Humbert, Humbert. And that is what every single one of these characters does. And actually, the character who plays Hector, who Game of Thrones fans will know, plays Braun, which yeah. is also a broken, lovable man you yeah, know, in for Game sure. of Thrones. He does this very well. It's a very fine line to walk in storytelling between creating monsters and creating characters that are there, but for the grace of God, go I characters. So Hector, I think sums this up really nicely after the bank robbery, when he had to convince him to do this by helping him, helping Kenny picture in his mind what the implications would be of this. By the way, at this point, Hector doesn't know that it's child pornography is involved. After all of this, he says to Kenny, I'm sorry about what I said to you back there. That's not like me. And he says, and I think I have this almost exactly, I'm actually a very nice guy when things are normal. Mm -hmm. And I, I think in many ways, that's like, that sums up what this episode is about, is when are things normal? Are things ever normal? And if our secrets came out, what could we be pushed to do? And then you have the added issue of maybe it depends on what the secrets are. So Kenny is pushed all the way to the point of committing, attempting suicide. Whereas Hector, the woman at the beginning, the man who delivers the cake, none of them are pushed to suicide or death. But Kenny is. I think another way of asking that same question is, are any of us actually good? I wrote an essay about this on my blog, about this episode, and the title of it was We All Feed the Trolls. 
all of us have something that could be captured, that could be used to hold us hostage for exactly the same reasons, whether they're as what society would deem as severe or not as racism or child pornography or infidelity, the, the, the kind of big sins that are used in this episode. But all of us have things that we've said or done that we know could have possibly happened in front or at least within the screenshot of a camera or someone walking by who had a cell phone. And we just live our lives hoping that those can be our secrets and no one else's. Imagine, for example, I, I don't know, you and I are standing on outside, I don't know, in Philadelphia or it could be wherever. And somehow as a joke, we start talking about eating babies and someone comes by and they then just film, let's say you in a very straight way, talking about how you like to cook babies. So now, all of a sudden, they have something. They barbecue them or... Right, they, slow you know, cook, yeah. Sushi. So, <laughs> I think it's sushi. Sashimi is the technical term. I feel... Okay, Rick, I feel like for this sake, letting all of our listeners in on this joke, we should admit that we actually did... Make this joke. As we were standing outside at a conference one night, we had both had a few drinks. We were making a joke, which, let me just assure everyone, was hilarious and continues to be hilarious to this day. But it is definitely one of those jokes that it was a you-had-to-be-there joke. No, And taken out of context, it, it, yeah. it is the opposite of funny. It is wrong. listening to Black Mirror Reflections, which is mostly a labor of love and is, at present, ad-free. If you like what you hear, and if you're hearing what you like, consider donating to us at patreon.com backslash blackmirrorreflections. That's patreon.com backslash blackmirrorreflections. And now back to our conversation. Let's leave aside for a moment the levels of wrongness. We've all done something wrong, and so I think your way of putting it is really nice. We all do feed the trolls. And the question here is, in a situation of the panopticon, why don't we control our behavior more? That's how the panopticon is supposed to work, is that we're supposed to realize we're under surveillance all the time and control our own behavior. But obviously we don't. And the question I think the episode is asking, is that only because of the assumption of secrecy, of privacy? And if that secrecy or privacy were removed, would we be better people? And then that leads to a more interesting question about, is there something, is there such a thing as just being a good person without this kind of public pressure or this societal pressure? But Lee, you, you broached on something that immediately made me think of another side of this. And that is, you said from at one moment, the trolls can come after us for whatever society deems to be unacceptable. And so now think about, it's within people who are alive today, within their lifetime, that 
uh, a white woman dating a black man would be susceptible to this kind of trolling. Same-sex marriages would be susceptible to this kind of trolling. All sorts of things. And so it's not just these things that we might say, wow, that's really bad, but it is an enforcement mechanism. And I think here penance as enforcement is really interesting. Yeah, I think that's a really good point because even within the the time that Twitter has been alive, there have been dramatic changes in generally accepted social attitudes towards different topics. And we can see now, today, this happens a lot, that someone digs up a tweet of a famous person from seven years ago, 10 years ago, 14 years ago, I'm trying to think of a specific example. It's hard to think of it. It's not hard to think of as a specific example. The use of the word retarded as a pejorative. Sure. Or yeah. the use of the word it to refer to a transgender person or right. he slash she or whatever. So yeah, it is one of those things where social media is now maintaining an archive of our mistakes that were not mistakes when we made them or- right. This is a, a larger, more complicated conversation because I think what I'm saying right now, I, I do believe is different than saying Thomas Jefferson didn't think that slavery was wrong and therefore it wasn't wrong in his time. I think that's a different thing right. than saying like the way that we talk about something adapts over right. time. Yeah. I had a teacher in graduate school, Agnes Heller, who just passed away last year. And in many ways, a heroic individual herself. But she once said in class that you cannot demand that everyone always do the good thing. But what you can demand is that when they don't, they know it. And mm -hmm. I, I think that that is a kind of ethics that I also find expressed, for example, in Hannah Arendt, when she talks about, what's her term for it, an action that sort of goes out into the world. I'm the author of that action, but once it's out in the world, it will have ripples of cause and effect that I am responsible for, even though I haven't foreseen them and I didn't want them and I didn't intend them. She goes on to argue that's exactly why in politics we need forgiveness, because that just is the human condition, is that we act and our actions are fraught with this kind of danger, we need to take responsibility and say, yes, I was the author of that and I'm sorry. I didn't want that to happen. I didn't intend it. And, and I'm sorry that happened. And without something like forgiveness, I think no one would ever be, no one would ever be ethical. Yeah, I want to go back for just a second, if we could, to this idea that everyone is one of those people. Like, everyone is one of those people that has secrets that they need. Is shriving even a verb? Yeah, it is. <laughs> that they, yeah. That they need to be shriven? Yes, I think need to be shriven. Is that? Okay, for which they need to be shriven. Try this idea on for yeah. So a lot of times when I teach in my technology, philosophy and technology class, I ask students to think seriously about the difference between their IRL 
meet space selves and their online selves. Because I do think that it is a, there's an ease with which college age students today will say the difference between how people are online and how people they are in real life is very different. And I don't think that is consistent with, for example, people my age. So I'm Gen X, after me are millennials, current college students are Zs or whatever, Gen Z. I ask them to think about this because in my ideal, I think if there's a dramatic difference between how you are IRL and how you are online, doesn't it occur to you at some point to say, which one is really more me and what is my investment in putting on the facade of the other? With the hopes, I think, of diminishing that divide between the two. That has been, for me, a really important part of my online life. And I am, again, part of a generation who straddled the digital divide. I was a very young adult when the internet kind of became a part of everyone's life. That happened while I was in college. And so for me, it's been very important for me to make, to maintain a digital life where I believe that anyone who knows me on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram, on whatever, on my blog or whatever, and they don't know me in real life, if they actually met me for the first time would be like, oh yeah, that's the person I know. But I do not think that this, that younger generation or the Gen Z feels this at all. Like they think that... It is a part of what it means to be a self, to be constantly curating multiple versions of their selves. What concerns me for them is that makes them all the more susceptible to mm. all of the trolling that, let's be honest, my generation invented, right? right? Like <laughs> all of the terrible kind of coercive trolling mechanisms that are my generation, which is a way of basically hijacking people's online activity or even private activity and using it against their in real life selves. Is there something to be said for trying to diminish the distance between your online self and your in real life self? Or is it another strategy of escaping this kind of coercive threat to just multiply yourself numerously yeah. that it doesn't matter what secrets get yeah. revealed. This is, I think, my ultimate position about technology and even forms of advanced technology. I think that, as Christopher Long always says, technology is always about access and denial. You're always making a trade-off in a given technology. You're being allowed some things and you're being denied other things. And I think like this multiplication of the self, look, in many ways, this could be straight, someone taking Judith Butler really seriously and taking this notion of performativity and saying, yeah, actually the self just is performative. And as you put it, the nice thing about performing so many multiple selves is if one gets trolled, I just walk away and I got yeah. 19 others. And so it, it could be a strategy, except my worry is, and I think this uh, the Shut Up and Dance episode shows us this, we're not completely without our meat ever. And what's interesting about the episode is it shows the way in which the online and the meat space 
are constantly crossing in and out of one another, interacting with one another, and having real effects on one another. Notice that even the racist emails of the CEO, they're emails. The man, Hector, who is hooking up with a prostitute, does all of that online. But he's there in a hotel room with lingerie for her in real meat space. And I don't know that much about how it works, but I think prostitution is, especially for the John, is a little bit better when it happens in meat space. I think that you're getting to something that is really crucial about this question here, which is that we have always had multiple selves, but there's always one self, one of yourselves, that's going to be the one that goes to jail. Yeah. And, and that is the thing that, that worries me about this current idea that all selves are curated performances. Of course, all selves are curated performances, but the consequences for one of those selves is going to be extremely severe. And the consequences for one of themselves can be the consequences of the actions of another one of those selves. And in a way, that's like, if we think about this as maybe push the word penance a little bit further down the road, and it becomes something like retribution. And I think what you're saying, like, only one of those selves goes to jail. And I think what this episode is showing is, yeah, okay, you could have as many online selves or multiply yourselves all over the place, but I'm going to hurt all of them when mm-hmm. I hurt this one. And and so maybe you've come to the, the solution to the problem is that what's your real self? It's the one that's punishable. It's the one that is ashamed. Yeah. They're not getting at the moral agent or the citizen. Like they're getting at the affective. Yep. Like really something like what religion calls the soul. You know? yeah. yeah, except with the necessary physicality and material, because as you say, affective, and that's all physical and material. And so it's the soul plus What makes it especially punishable, and even the Catholic Church knew this, is if, like, you start hitting that a little bit or (laughs) apply a machine or the soul comes around pretty quickly when the legs are getting stretched. This episode shares a feature that all of my favorite episodes of Black Mirror share, and that is there's no resolution in the end. There's no, like, there's no, aha, see, I told you this was bad, or the the bad one gets punished, or it's all just left. Right. It it isn't a clear-cut moral lesson here. The other ambiguity is, and this is why I said this at the beginning, Kenny's pretty young. And so there's another ambiguity there. Yeah. Let's talk about that, because he, it's, it's hard to tell how old he is in this episode. He clearly lives at home with his mother. So we have to assume not a legal adult. Uh, And and remember, Lee, at one point he tells Hector that he can't drive because he's still learning how to drive. And he has a job. So this, of course, is happening in the UK. So it doesn't quite map on to the exact age limits in the United States. But let's say he's between... 16 and 18, so not in any legal sense 
jailable for some of the things that we would normally hold adults responsible for. And and also, this is a his sin here or his violation here is of a sexual nature, and he is in puberty, right? right? Like he is developing. But we are given a lot of hints in the episode that definitely, in retrospect, encourage us to think that he is a pedophile in development. So he's a busboy at a restaurant. There are these glimpses of interactions of him with small children. He tarries over a like a placemat, one of those color-in yeah. placemats that a child has left on a table. So we're meant to think that we can't just brush this off as a horny teenager. Yeah. And you were going to say something about a moment in the restaurant, though? So it's when he's clean busting one of the tables and he notices that a little girl has left a toy on the table and he calls out to them and says, hey, I think you forgot something. And you put it nicely, like he's tarrying over that placemat. In retrospect, one, you like I didn't notice it the first time I watched this episode, but at the second time, I'm like, ew, he's looking a little bit too long at that girl. Yeah. And like the first time, I never thought about it. But the second time, it now is a little bit creepy. Yeah, but also we see as the kind of intensity of the episode ramps up and as the intensity of his own situation ramps up for him, we see that he has deep, gut-wrenching guilt about this. He never says to anyone else, I was looking at pornography of children, as a matter of fact. Right. You know, he admits to looking at pornography. At first he says, I was just looking at pictures. And then he halfway admits to masturbating in front of the screen. But he never actually is able to even articulate himself, his own wrong to anyone else. It remains a secret. And the only person who knows about it, Kenny actually physically beats to death. Yeah, that's right. And there are also ways in which throughout the episode, he himself is depicted as a child. So, for example, when he robs the bank and he pees himself while he's robbing the bank and like the teller is looking at the floor and she feels a little sorry for him. And and she kind of empathizes with him, even though he's robbing her at gunpoint. So there are these interesting moments. I also find it interesting and and not necessarily in a good way, but it seems clear that Kenny and his sister don't have a father or he's not living at home. His mom is dating and his mom has wrapped him up into her dating life. So we see a scene where she's standing at a mirror getting ready for a date and she asks him how he thinks her hair looks because she's still not sure about the color. And then she starts talking to the guy about, to him, about the, to Kenny, about the guy. And I'm like, this is really weird for someone of his age to be wrapped up in his mom's dating life. It's just a little bit weird. So that's another moment where he's being pulled back and forth from a childhood world to an adult world. Yeah, he's like a man child. Yeah.
if it's okay with you, I want to put to you some kind of meta questions. One of the questions that this episode poses is whether or not it is possible to be shriven, to to be you know to be freed from guilt. The whole premise of the episode is that we know what you've done, we know your sin. And if you do these things, if you pay this penance, that you will be freed from that, you'll be absolved. And of course, the great catch of the episode is that they all pay their penance. And at the end, what they get is the famous rage comic troll face sent to them, which if you don't know what this is, you should look it up on Wikipedia, but it's a kind of laughing. You definitely know what it is. It's the laughing troll face. And the absolution that was promised to them is, of course, denied after they've paid their penance. Yeah. And I think you're right that to speak a little bit from Adorno's perspective for a moment, I think what the episode points out is that Kenny especially, we don't know so much, maybe Hector we know a little bit more, we don't know so much about the other people's relationship to their crime or whatever you want to call it. But he's he's looking, I think, really for absolution. Uh, so you use that word. I want this washed clear of me. But there's a way in which there's no way that his actions could be made right. They can't be redeemed. You can't redeem the wrong thing. The, what, what is wrong because it's irredeemable. In a world in which redemption is possible, then Kenny wouldn't have been doing what he was doing. Certainly, and it's strangely, because even now as I'm talking to you, I feel more sympathy, I think is the better word here. I feel more sympathy for Ch- uh, Kenny than I do for the man who he beats to death, who was also a pedophile. Like that guy, I, I, I don't know. I'm like, that guy, he's just sick and wrong and he's a rat bastard. But Kenny, I'm like, huh, it's sad. I mean, you saw the other guy for five minutes. If you had I, not even five, you saw him for a minute and a half. Like if, yeah. you, if you knew him, if you knew his story, would he be any different? I think maybe this is the question that I'm trying to ask you is that I feel like we're both willing to grant that this is the human condition, that we all are, we all have this somewhere in us. We all have these secrets. We all have these sins. We all have this need for absolution, for forgiveness, for shrivenness, for things that we have done to be forgotten. And the great metaphor of the information age is that nothing is ever deleted. That's right. right. That and and, you, and and it really makes you wonder whether or not we've passed the point where this idea of forgiveness or absolution or reconciliation as involving some kind of forgiveness or wiping clear of debts or erasing the memory whether that even can persist in this new world. So the the question would be, and I'm not sure I think this, is whether forgiveness requires forgetting. I, I don't know that in order to forgive someone, I need to forget what was done, especially if I'm like the victim or even like it was done against me, 
I don't know that I need to forget in order to forgive. Because, by the way, let's, to, to speak like an analytic philosopher for a moment, if I had amnesia suddenly and forgot that when you were staying at my house, you stole $100 from me, and I forgot. Yeah, sorry, sorry about that, dude. Yeah. <laughs> for those of you who, who can't uh, see Lee's face, she's like, good thing he doesn't know about the other 100 Good thing he doesn't know about the hard drive I stole, which you can all access on my Google Drive account. (laughs) No, I don't want to go there because that raises a whole other question. But we wouldn't say that because I've forgotten, you are forgiven. And so then I'm wondering, why do we think that it's related in the other way, that in order for me to forgive, I have to forget? And I think you're right that what Kenny wants, especially, and I think to a large extent, Hector, wants to be absolved, like this should be washed away as if it never happened. And the question I have is, could we forgive and not act as if it never happened? It happened, and is there some level of forgiveness possible? And I think this is what truth and reconciliation commissions around the world strive and struggle with, is precisely this. I know from my friend Maria Acosta that in Colombia, part of the truth and reconciliation process is actually telling the story. In other words, remembering. That's the necessary part of reconciling with the the perpetrators. So I think that's a really interesting question. That's interesting. I actually wrote my dissertation on Truth and Reconciliation Commissions. So you're exactly right that the way that Truth and Reconciliation Commissions work is that they insist on truth-telling. And truth-telling is part of reconciliation. And reconciliation is about healing a break in the social fabric, in the social contract, but it's not the same as forgiveness in the religious sense of forgiveness, or at least in the Abrahamic sense of forgiveness. Nevertheless, both forgiveness in the religious sense and reconciliation, even in these kind of transitional justice senses, involve something like the cancellation of a debt to to go all to go all the way back to like basic Aristotelian dis- distributive justice. Something that was owed is no longer owed, and so I I don't think that you can talk about reconciliation or forgiveness without involving some kind of erasure of at the very least the brokenness. Even if what you say is this was broken, I remember that it was broken, but it's now healed. Or this was owed, I remember that it is owed, but it is now not owed. It's forgiven or whatever. But I do still think that this age that we're in, this information that age that we're in deeply troubles those ideas in the same way that it troubles this idea that you can do anything and it's secret. Right. Mm-hmm. Like that anything that you anywhere you go, anything that you look at online, anything that you do, that you're always being surveilled, you're always being tracked, you're always being datified, that there's nothing that is unseen anymore. That that I think is something that I would say now in 2020 that I would not have said seven years ago in 2013 when I first saw this episode. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. And I I think part of that has to do with the advance in, I think it's frequently miscalled AI, but let's just say more sophisticated ways of dealing with really large data sets. 
So, you know, it's not impossible to gather all the data there is on everyone. It is still a little bit impossible to do something useful or nefarious with that. And I think that's changing. And and that's why you wouldn't have said that in 2013. Yeah, I agree with you. And this will take us too far afield. But I, I just wonder if this notion of debt in relation to forgiveness, if there's not another way to think about this. Because I teach Anselm of Canterbury a lot, and I think he started this way of thinking in which Jesus had to be God and human precisely because in original sin in the, in, back in the Garden of Eden, we incurred a debt. We incurred it against God and we can't pay it back. And forgiveness is this repayment of debt. And I think if one looks at a different model, for example, Julian of Norwich, who will say it's not that we're broken, it's that we are ontologically fragile and we require God to hold us in existence all the time. And therefore, the question isn't forgiveness of debt, but the question is love for her. And I'm not someone who comes easily to throwing around a word like love and think, oh, yeah, that's really interesting. And it would take me too long to play that out. But I think she's offering a different model than someone like Anselm of Canterbury. And it's one that's not based on this economy of debt and forgiveness. Yeah, I think that another model that we could look at is in Hegel. I think that the great kind of like mystery moment in Hegel is the moment of forgiveness, the melting of the hard heart. Like I always joke, and this is the moment in the phenomenology where it's like that far side cartoon where they're like, there's these mathematicians standing in front of a big board with a bunch of equations on it. They're like, a miracle happened to you. <laughs> like it doesn't really make sense, but that's what happened. That's basically what Hegel describes. It's just sort of melting of the hard heart, which is not exactly a cancellation of the debt or forgiveness, but it's a transformation, right? Of right. the relationship between free consciousness that recognizes another free consciousness as like itself. And I feel like I'm I'm going in too hard on my point here. But again, even that idea is shaken by our new reality, which is that the machine consciousnesses that recognize our debts do not recognize in us anything like them and are not going to have their hearts right. softened, right, by this interaction with us. And so we're back into the dilemma that I stated before, which is like, nothing is ever deleted, nothing is ever forgotten. And that, I think, hardens our hearts, hardens us. We become more protective and invested in privacy, which I think is a terrible place to put all of our, I feel like we've pushed all our chips in on the privacy hand and that's the wrong hand to push all in on. But the scenario is the same, that we end up being ones who are ashamed and afraid. Yeah, I, I think that's right. And I think when you add to that, the more we interact with machines that operate as machines do, we're trained to behave like machines ourselves. Exactly. exactly. And so then 
we tend to be harder and harder hearted than I, I think we otherwise would be. But not to get all depressing, but <laughs> that horse is out of the barn. That ship has sailed. That that oh genie God. is out of the bottle. That I don't know. I can't think of. I want to pile like six hundred metaphors on to say like how over that is. Rickley, you are like my. 11th episode of this podcast to uh, record. And in almost every single one, at some point, somebody has been like, that horse is out of the barn. I feel like I'm going to rename this whole series, (laughs) The Horse is Out of the Barn. At the conclusion of this episode, please make sure to check out our post at readmorewritemorethinkmorebemore.com. That's readmorewritemorethinkmorebemore.com, where we'll include a list of further readings, references, and links to things that we talked about in this episode. Now back to the conversation. We're running up against our time here. So I am going to put three questions to you that I put to all my guests at the end of the episode. So the first question is, what is the lesson that you think we should take from this episode, Shut Up and Dance? The second question is, what about this episode? And it can be either the philosophical themes or the moral themes or the actual technology in this episode, of which there's none, worry or concern or frighten you the most. And the third question is, on a scale of one to 10, with one being a nightmarish dystopia and 10 being a almost perfect utopia, where does this episode fall? So go. So I think the the lesson of this episode is that I'm going to steal a little bit from where you ended up, Lee, in that privacy has, in fact, way before we started talking about internet, privacy has been a mirage. It, 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 It has been a construct. So I teach this class called Discover Chicago, and in it, I teach this essay by Maria Kaika. It's called Interrogating the Geographies of the Familiar, colon, Domesticating Nature and Constructing the Autonomy of the Modern Home. A long title, one of the upshots of that is that the privacy of our home is in fact not private because things come in and out all the time. Water comes in, water goes out, electricity comes in. And so privacy has always been a mirage. And to the extent that we want to link morality or even good behavior, ethics to any notion of privacy, we're going to have to rethink that. I have two kinds of worries about this episode. One is I worry that it shades a little bit too close to sex shaming for me. And that does worry me a lot. I think the time has come where we all just have to admit that we've done things in front of our cameras or behind our cameras or aside that we don't need to be ashamed of. The other set or the other side of the concerns is I I am concerned that There are too many people like Kenny who, when they run into a problem, will Google install something that is the first link they find without even looking. Like, just do a Google search, Shrive, good or bad, or Shrive, evil or just really nasty. So then when we get to the dystopia, utopia thing, so there, Lee, you put me in a bad way. Because if I say 
one, it's a nightmarish dystopia, then I have to say, and we're living it. Or I, I would say something like three. I think it's a dystopia. And thank God something like this has not yet happened because it's not that difficult. As you said earlier, the tech is already here to do this. Yeah. Normally this would be the end of my episode, but I do want to ask you one more thing because only because you just brought this up that thank God it has not happened. But I do think that we are currently hearing an argument from the right in this country that more or less claims that this is what cancel culture is. What we see in this episode, what these trolls do, is what social justice warriors, SJWs, do online, which is take someone's secrets, and and it doesn't really matter if they're secrets or not, but take someone's isolated activities that do not represent the person that they are and destroy their lives. So yeah, I do want to give you a chance to comment on that. So it seems to me that your Thomas Jefferson example, I think, is a good one. I, I don't think that I need to say to someone this is who you are as a person and this action or this thing you said or this thing you tweeted, it defines the essence of who you are. In order for me to say this is wrong and would the today you step up and say, geez, I, I, I wish I hadn't done that. Look, I smashed a Twinkie in Katie Vitek's face in fifth grade. I wish every day I hadn't done that. And I, I think there's a difference. I have not seen widespread use of doxing or swatting the from the perspective of social justice warriors, let alone something going on to the extent that Shut Up and Dance depicts it. Rick, thanks so much for coming on this episode. I would trust my secrets with you any day, as I have. Please say hey to Ricky Jr. for me. You've been listening to Black Mirror Reflections. Check us out and please subscribe on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you download your regular podcasts. 